This episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. McDonald's is celebrating their crew members who help everyone feel a sense of community whenever they stop into Mickey D's. Whether they're remembering your usual order or providing fast and friendly service, a huge thanks to McDonald's crew members for making everyone's McDonald's visits even more special. McDonald's, I'm loving it. Hey. Yes. Hello. Hi. Yeah, could you take a photo of us? Yes. On the Vespa? For sure. You look so pink. Here. Guess who I am? Uh, what? What? Peppa Pig. I'm Monica Vitti. Monica Vitti is dead. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV. I am David Chen. And I am Roxana Haddadi. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing season two, episode two of The White Lotus, entitled Italian Dream. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. You can email us at decodingtv at gmail.com and find us on YouTube and TikTok, uh, as well as Twitter at decodingtv. Uh, we will, of course, spoil this week's episode of The White Lotus, but we will not spoil any future week's episodes of the show. That includes anything on the next time on preview or any other episodes we may or may not have seen. So, Roxana, let us get into it. Season two, episode two of The White Lotus, uh, entitled Italian Dream. What were your overall thoughts on this episode? Well, I think last time with episode one... We talked about how that felt like a lot of table setting. Mm -hmm. Like we met all the characters. They convened in Sicily. We sort of got a sense of what their personal and relationship dramas were. And I think we got more of that in this episode. And I sort of am feeling a tension where I like the additional details that we're getting. But I'm also sort of wondering if there's going to be a sort of secondary narrative discussion yet or if we're going to stay in romantic relationship land for a little while which is which is fine but so far that's primarily where we are so yeah i mean just uh, waiting I, for maybe something else i think uh that's a very nice way of saying not that much happened in this episode right? yeah um i mean there was one big there was one big best. one big confrontation and kind of one yeah. revelation really yeah. Um, but other than that, we're kind of just hanging with these folks yeah. and, uh, I'm cool with that. You know, it's a beautiful place. These are beautiful mm -hmm. people, uh, and there are really interesting relationship dynamics at play, uh, relationship dynamics at play. I don't know if I said that correctly, but, um, but yeah, I mean, this still feels like more table setting feels like more, uh, buildup, but I think I'm just accepting that it's, you know, probably going to be a hang TV show for a, a yeah. lot of it. And uh, and I enjoy the hang. I like the hang, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, is, is there going to be any kind of main overarching plot that drives through this season? Are we getting, you know, last season there were these through lines um, that happened uh, throughout the season. Is Tanya going to come to terms with her mother's death? Um, right. Is Shane ever going to get into the pineapple suite? You know, is right. Rachel going to leave Shane? Like these are some bigger through line questions. And this season, it's not as clear what the through lines are. I mean, yes, the Tanya stuff is uh, definitely still on my mind, but like, where are we going with uh, all the stuff around Dominic and, and uh, Bert and Albie, you know, like, where's all that going? It's, it's kind of unclear at this point. Similarly, Harper, Ethan, Daphne and Kemp, who we spend a lot of time with in the show so far. A lot of time. It's like, what is gonna, what is 
the purpose of this. Now, again, that said, still really am enjoying the show, still enjoying the hang, and we'll talk about ways in which I think this uh, show is is quite good. Um, but yeah, from a plot perspective, still not not clear what's going on. So, mm-hmm. and I I sort of miss. I will say I sort of miss the chaos of an Armand. Mm. You know, just like slowly sort of unraveling until he eventually was very quickly unraveling. Right. I feel like the seeds of that were sort of planted. How, how does an Armand unravel uh, very slowly and then very quickly? Uh, yeah, that's what it, yeah, it's like it took a little while. And then he sort of like fell off a, you know, figurative cliff. Yeah. So I, I'm missing that a little bit. And maybe we'll get that in future episodes. But for now, I'm sort of craving a little bit more chaos. Yeah, uh, that's fair. That's fair. Well, you know, one response might be not chaotic enough for you, Roxana. Uh, I know. Because there is some chaos here. All these people fighting is not enough chaos. And I'm like, it's not. No, I need more. I okay, need more. fair enough. I yeah. want to start by making an observation about the opening credits scene that we talked okay. about last week. Um, I don't, if you mentioned this, I apologize. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think you did, but maybe you did. Okay, but I was rewatch. I was watching episode two this morning before we recorded. And um, I realized that uh, there's a fun little game you can play when you're watching the opening credits, uh, which is that when the cast member's name appears on screen, the Mm -hmm. painting of a character or whatever is going on on screen kind of matches with that character's role in the show. Okay. So... Anyway, that's just a fun little... I did little... not notice. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, maybe um, you'll watch it, Roxana, next time, and you'll be like, you're out of your mind, David. That doesn't make any sense. But for me, when I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, I can kind of see why that is kind of like Aubrey Plaza. And I'm just going to... Okay, is there... Well, what... so what is the one that's sort of... Do you remember what they are or anything? You know, I wish I had prepared a whole presentation for you, and perhaps <laughs> next Where week... are my slides? Here's... I mean, here's what I'm going to say. Here's what I'm going to say is... If you watch it next time and agree with me, then I will, then we should do that. We should okay. do the analog. Like, I want you to text me after you okay. watch the next episode and tell me, like, okay, David, you nailed it. Or, okay. wow, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. But you see, now I'm very curious about there is if there is a uh, cast member or crew member name or anything that corresponds with the woman having sex with the swan. Mm. Now I'm very curious. I don't think so. I don't think so. Oh, well, that's too bad. Yeah, Missed yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, fun little game to play. What you know, two actually two games. There's a meta game of is David Chen full of crap. Um, right. You can also play. So right. two two Has games. Has the new theme song unhinged him? <laughs> it's a good question to ask. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, well, let's dive into the episode. So we're going to start with uh, the Harper and Ethan storyline, uh, which is where the episode start it starts. Yeah. Ethan wakes up early and goes for a run by himself. Uh, and we see he wakes up way before Harper does, and he's super fit and getting a nice view of everything that's going on out in the world. And I just wanted to say, Roxana, I felt seen by this whole sequence. Uh, I wake up probably around three to four hours before my wife wakes up most days. (laughs) So I'm often just like on my own, living my life. And uh, yeah. and that's kind of what you know, Ethan was doing, yeah. You know, I said that. I, I reacted like that was actually shocking. But unfortunately, I also am the flip side of that scenario where my partner wakes up probably two to three to 
maybe sometimes four hours before. Yeah. So I don't know why I reacted. <laughs> oh man, I pulled a Harper and I reacted with such judgment. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, yeah. it ended up being about me all along. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it, Roxana. Yikes. Anyway, so Harper ends yeah. up at breakfast with Daphne and Cam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because, you know, she's there. It's like, hey, come on over. Let's have breakfast together, which is obviously something right. Harper really wants. Uh, not. Anyway, uh, they have a, a, a breakfast conversation. It's super clear they have nothing at all in common. Um, and then Harper goes back to Ethan's room. Now, Ethan gets back to e- his room early, and he starts uh, looking at pornography. Yeah. Uh, you know, Roxana, I would never... I, I, I don't even know what website this guy was looking at. I would never <laughs> look at any of these uh, salacious <laughs> materials. I would never, yeah, right? never. But, no. but... If you extremely were extremely hypothetically, right, sure. a, a, an un- inconceivable scenario. Extremely hypothetically, if I were to do so, I would never do so under the circumstances under which Ethan does so in this episode. I mean, no. you gotta, uh, you know, not be exposed metaphorically and literally uh, in the way that he is in this episode. I don't think he played it correctly. Uh, He's facing the doorway. <laughs> Like, how did you not even go into the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I uh, seriously, have a lot of the suite is about the that. suite is huge. Okay, yes. I mean, there's tons of space. You don't need yes. to be doing it in a place where um, your wife can walk in on you at any moment. Again, yes. hypothetically speaking, I don't even, I can't even relate to this yeah. whole mentality. Like, so I'm just, but I'm just saying, if I use the deepest recesses of my imagination to try to imagine what it might be like to be, mm-hmm. in even, which I can't, I can barely comprehend. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. say don't don't be out in the open like that. You know, that's kind of would be my advice. As we are riffing on this, <laughs> I will say riffing? that in in hindsight, <laughs> this this scene did did sort of feel uh like it wasn't necessarily representative of people who have been together for the years that we are being told they've been together. Right? I guess I guess I'm just surprised his behavior and that she would be surprised. I think there's sort of a like expositional quality to this dialogue that doesn't necessarily reflect the relationship at hand. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too critical, but something about it, I was like, would either of you really react like well, this? Well, tell t- tell me what like why do you what's what about you strikes or so what about the scene strikes you as in, inauthentic? I mean, it, it feels to me like Harper is very to your to the previous discussion of uh ethan is like facing the door (laughs) i just something about it it doesn't feel like like the regular routine of what they're doing so maybe Uh, the point here is that they're on vacation and they're beginning to act differently from their normal repetition but something about harper's shock was a little like would you really be that surprised? And something about Ethan just doing it like open on the bed with no idea of when Harper would be back felt a little off. I disagree. Okay, uh, that's, you know, completely. Uh, mm-hmm, or or mm-hmm. here's here's why. Here's why I disagree. And again, I just I, I just need to reemphasize that I this is just. I have would never be able to comprehend what someone in this situation would be. So maybe I'm because mm-hmm. of that. I can only just you know wild stab in the dark guess sure. at what the dynamics here are. Mm-hmm. But I would mm-hmm. say that um, 
there are many reactions that someone in Harper's situation could have to this scenario. And okay. I think uh, um, a lot of people might feel insulted um, that mm-hmm. their partner was viewing pornographic materials and open view of them. Um, but I feel like they both handled it rather maturely. I'm not saying this is a healthy relationship. You know, I'm not saying because I think there's certainly elements that we see that are not super healthy. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that they both seemed like quite mature about it. He's like, oh, I just, I just needed to take care of it. And she's like, well, you know, I can help you. And he's like, no, 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 I'm good. Like, there's oh, clearly, see, I... there's clearly hmm. like um, a lot that's like unsaid in that interaction, but yes. they both treat each other civilly there's not there's not very much judgment um explicitly oh, in I that co- okay mm, go ahead i completely okay, read yeah. this differently all right well again again since i i have no idea what someone in this situation would think be yeah. thinking it's it's possible that i have i'm way off you know i think so. harper is very judgmental like i think her do you want help is incredibly half-hearted which is not to say that she should be like super enthusiastic necessarily but I, I didn't really read uh that she was being very mature about it i think that she was potentially offended by it which sure and then i think she sort of signaled her disinterest by switching so quickly to talking about daphne and cam which is really what she's obsessed with on this trip yes right i mean like harper has not talked about like finding things that they could do together that her and Ethan could do together or, Hey, you're getting up early for your run. What if we did something together in the mornings? Like there's no thought of, is there time that we can carve out for each other? There's just, I want to talk shit about these people. (laughs) And apparently this is something she does regularly. So as much as the masturbation sequence was a little off for me, I thought the rhythm of this conversation with Harper sort of being obsessed with comparing the couples to each other and Ethan sort of bemused, okay, like I'm used to this routine. I thought that felt like a very lived in dynamic that sort of signaled to me what their relationship is potentially like and maybe the things that make Harper uncomfortable and how Ethan is used to diffusing that tension like i really like that following conversation mm-hmm. interesting okay yeah. well i think we're gonna have to agree to disagree on that one and i'm sure people okay. will let us know who among us they're whose side they're on at decoding tv at gmail.com feel free to let mm-hmm. us know what you thought of that scene sure all these people who also find this scene purely hypothetical <laughs> not at all yeah yeah i mean so I think so few people would really yeah. relate to anything going on that mm-hmm. it would, any mm-hmm. people writing in would be completely hypothetical. Um, but yeah, there is a kind of fun moment when he does say like, hey, you're you're really judging these people like uh, and he kind of calls her out on it. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's only people that she feels threatened by is what kind of what he right. says. Right. And there is a great. Uh, edit in the episode where she says i bet they're over there trashing me all the time too and then it cuts to them like daphne and cam hanging out having a blast really strong don draper i don't think about you at all energy in that cut um and i do think we're seeing kind of you know two different psych like psychological profiles of like people who are like there's some people who 
compare themselves to others and other people who like uh, you know obvi- we obviously Daphne and Kim have significant shortcomings but they you know their their neuroses or their shortcomings are in a completely different area uh, mm-hmm. than anything that Harper might be dealing with so and anyway yeah. we do see I mean later on we'll get to this we do see them discussing Harper but so far they haven't discussed Ethan like it feels like a lot of Harper's judgment of Daphne and Cam is about their relationship and she's sort of making like all these calls on what they must be like as people and as a like collective entity. Um, but I will say to Cam's credit, you know, he, he is sort of like, Hey, Harper's the problem, but he doesn't make, you know, like he doesn't make this huge indictment of what's wrong with them. So yeah, I think we're seeing different, ways that people consider themselves here when we're talking about the couples. Yeah. So Daphne and Cam uh, and Harper and Ethan hang out again um, later in the episode. We learn a little bit more about their backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, Harper's, like the the wealth of Ethan is explicitly brought up and yeah. like, hey, isn't life better now that you're wealthy and super rich and... I think this is a thing that a lot of, I'm going to just say, uh, smart rich people do, is mm-hmm. they uh, downplay their wealth, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that Ethan does in the scene, and um, it reminds me of Bill Gates when he was talking about how he was a billionaire, and mm-hmm. people ask like, "Hey, now that you're a billionaire, like, what what is life like? Is is life vastly different?" He's like, "Well, I used to be, I used to go and eat one, I used to go to the restaurant and eat one cheeseburger, and now I guess I can have two cheeseburgers." You know, like that's kind of how he put it. And it's like, it's kind of a way of making him like, I, I think you know, at, at the time when I heard it, I was like, "Oh, I, I guess he's really still very grounded." But like now looking back on it, I'm like, I think that's just a way that ultra millionaires or billionaires like try to seem relatable to people. And um, I don't know that Ethan strikes me as a particularly calculating person or anything like that, but I do think that um, he is socially proper and isn't going to say things like, yeah, like being rich is awesome. You know, like he's not going to, he's not going to do that. And he does talk about how it's nice to be able to help um, Harper's family and, and things like that. uh, Some of whom are living in Puerto Rico. So Mm -hmm. Um, but but that they're not materialistic, you know. Uh, Harper clarifies that they're not materialistic, so you know the, the money doesn't really matter. Anyway, your of thoughts course. on this this sequence, Roxana? I mean, okay, you're not materialistic, but like, aren't they now like multi multi millionaires? <laughs> like, I just this scene again does a lot to make me think like ah, I sort of relate to where Harper is coming from, and that she doesn't want to uh compare herself with these people but the reality is like you're closer to these people than you're closer to who you used to be right i mean you're on this vacation together you two could afford it where we learn she's helping her sister and her mom i mean i just there is this tension here between the person harper does not want to be and i think the show is doing a good job in sort of making her i hate to say unlikable i don't necessarily want to say that But I think the show is doing a good job in giving her this dialogue that can be read either way, right? It can be read to your point, like someone who is being, you know, very thoughtful about their wealth and not trying to be like garish or Mm -hmm. off-putting about it. But at the same time, you can't change that you are wealthy, like you are part of that system. So almost in this way, I do almost find Harper 
a little bit like an Olivia from season one. I was literally okay. about to bring that up. She's like Olivia yeah. V two, where she's yeah, an old. She's I a little bit older than about. Olivia, right? Um, yeah, because but, I, yeah. I sort of thought that Portia was going to be our Olivia and Paula stand-in, but I think in Harper, Harper almost is like an Olivia and a Rachel, where she is now. We like she has proximity to this insane wealth that she was not used to, did not grow up with. And I think there's this attempt to reconcile, well, like, who am I now? Is this money going to change me? Yeah. Uh, that is, yeah, interesting. And I think, you know, like, they like the money, right? Like, the money has opened up doors for them. But they're also seeing something in Daphne and Cam that at least Harper does not want to be. Yeah. I think she has this deep anxiety, right, about wanting yeah. to become, like, not wanting to become a bo quote unquote boring person um, yeah. or uh, stuck up and snobbish and uh, positions herself as better than these other people, but, like, really fears becoming them. I, and there's a deep anxiety about that. It's kind of my read did, on it. Yeah. And did we talk about last week where Harper described herself and Ethan as white passing? Uh, I think we might have touched on it, but yeah, feel free to to delve into it okay. a little more or reiterate and or reiterate. Well, I, it's just something I keep thinking about, right? Because I think that she sees Daphne and Cam as these white, wealthy, to use her word, materialistic, narcissistic people who, as we talked about with episode one, sort of have the ability to ignore the world around them. And so I think... There's also this sense from Harper that if she were to become one of those people, it's because of how her and Ethan look. And so I'm just I'm curious if that uh, comes up again or not. I mean, I don't think the White Lotus has done a ton of explicit racial discussion. I mean, mm -hmm. we sort of had some implied disparity between like Belinda and Tanya and Paula and Olivia. And so I think, I don't know how much Mike White wants to dig into what does it mean when a person of color becomes shockingly wealthy and like, what are the implications of that? Which is something I'm, I'm trying to keep an eye on. I'm just sort of, sort of curious. Yeah. I think the privilege of white people is acknowledged in this season. Yeah, you know, but beyond that, I don't know that the show's going to delve that much into it. Yeah, um, but I do appreciate that it's acknowledged. You know that that yeah. there, there's something. I, you know, when she says the words, I think it's Harper that says "white passing," right? Yeah. Uh, in episode one, and so I, I think, um, yeah, there's. Uh, it, I'll be curious to see if that conversation goes anywhere. So yeah, like if it's a sort not a throwaway line, but sort of like a one line and like a done, or if it's brought up again. I mean, it's not, I don't think it would be brought up by Daphne and Cam, right? Like, they don't necessarily seem self-aware enough to talk about that. But maybe I'm wrong because Cam does obviously pick up on Harper not liking him. And he mm. has that line when they're swimming together when he's like, I just want you to like us. And she's yes. like, oh, I do. And it was the most... <laughs> Cam doesn't seem super woke. Cam doesn't seem super woke to you, no. Roxana. Um, no, he does not, no. He has self-awareness about her not liking him and yet also uh, grabs her ankle from the deeps, uh, So, which I have to imagine would make anyone uncomfortable. So, Yeah. You know. And he doesn't apologize for the nudity in that scene, no, right? No. 
He just apologizes for like saying dumb things. Yeah. So again, it's like mm, how three steps forward, two steps back with Cam. I think. Yeah, yeah. How purposeful was him walking to that mirror? Yeah. Unclear. Yeah. Unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So there is, you know, so they go swimming. We, as we've discussed, then they have a meal together. And I just want to say, one of the things I really like about the show and this season is. It really does a good job of capturing what this relationship dynamic is and mm-hmm. how, like, between these two couples and how painful and uncomfortable and awkward and cringy it is where, like, these people who basically have, like, nothing in common but are, like, trying to like each other, you know, what happens when you put them all together? It's not, like, excruciating all the time or anything, but it's just like, mm-hmm. okay, like, yeah, it's fine, but, you know, is this really the best t- way that these people can be spending each other's time? You know, like... It's. I, I think the show does a great job of capturing that dynamic, which is a dynamic that I don't know about you, Roxana, but I have definitely witnessed, potentially on a rare occasion, been part of. Um, mm-hmm. And I find it very true to life and very accurate. So that's like one of the delights of watching The White Lotus season two for me is like witnessing that dynamic play out. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of awkward and cringy, they're at dinner. They're talking about having kids, which by the way, let me just give some advice to you if you're listening right now. Don't ask people about their kids' plans in a group setting. Um, <laughs> that is just a terrible idea. Like if you are one-on-one friends with someone, if you're close, very close friends with someone and you're having sure. a private conversation, yes, by all means, like check in on your friend. Do not ask people in a group setting. Uh, I, I just, I feel like you don't know what people are going through. Maybe they're mm-hmm. infertile and it's incredibly painful. Maybe, you know, they've been trying and they can't or one of them has a biological issue and, they, you know, like, um, but that's just my, that's just life advice from the old Dave Chen here uh, that the White Lotus is making me think of. So, <coughs> excuse and, me. Go ahead. And to your point, it's how many other areas of conversation did they have to fail at <laughs> to get to... Hey, you guys going to have kids? Mm-hmm. I mean, it really speaks to the possibility of they've either been sitting there in silence for a very long time mm-hmm. or they've just cycled through everything else. Maybe they talked about Ted Lasso again. I mean, mm. I don't know. But the thing about that scene is, yes, it starts in this very uncomfortable, sort of cringy way. But I do think it gives us our best Daphne and Cam scene that actually makes you understand sort of how they feel about each other and love each other. And I think it gives Megan Fahey a really good opportunity to dig into who Daphne is. And it makes me think maybe a lot of this character is purposeful surface. I mean, I think there is depth there after this scene. Uh, And I think we're, we're sort of getting a little bit like a little bit of a reveal of that, with the story about her issues and her labor and their worry about their most recent child and all yeah, so let's theory. let's just be explicit, right? You're you're talking yeah. about the fact that Daphne uh, reveals that she had an emergency C- C-section for her last child yeah. because they couldn't find the baby's heartbeat, uh, and it's a very raw scene where we sense like a depth in Daphne that we didn't know about before that she's. There's might be many things that she's thoughtful about that we're unaware of, uh, and that she has gone through like potential pain and tragedy in her life, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I do think it's really nicely done, yeah. Um, but and I think Harper is appropriately, she seems like appropriately shocked by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
But also, I mean, Roxana, you're not even mentioning the most significant part of the scene, in my opinion, which is Ethan putting uh, Harper on blast, kind of, uh, yeah. at the dinner, where he's like, yeah, our sex schedules don't really line up. You know, um, I wake up earlier than her and blah, blah, blah. And so that's why we're not, it's not really having good, which is just like incredibly awkward thing to bring up at a dinner you know like i don't i don't know yeah. what is going it felt to me like ethan was being passive aggressive by bringing it mm -hmm. up it's like her way of his way of letting harper know he has a problem with it without just telling her he has a problem with it you know what i'm saying like mm -hmm. um it so. sinks back i mean it sinks back to the scene that you could not even imagine in which i think she was being <laughs> passive aggressive to him mm -hmm. in offering to help but not really offering to help right and i mean even phrasing it i think i think she even phrases it as help uh and of course like in any romantic relationship i can sort of understand that not every sexual encounter is going to be some spontaneous passionate instantaneous thing but i think the purpose of that scene and how it circles back here is like there is something off whether it's because they don't really want to have kids, Harper doesn't want to have a kid, and maybe that's why she's not pursuing so much of their sexual relationship. But yeah, there was some passive aggressiveness there that I think is sort of another crack in the foundation of what we were initially supposed to perceive as a successful, happy, supportive relationship. Yeah, I, I I really disagree with your read on that scene. I don't think she was being like passive wow. aggressive. I think she's being like awkward. You know, I don't. I think she was like she didn't really know what to do in that scenario. But I didn't. Hmm. I didn't sense like passive aggression behind her her attitude in that scene. But maybe hmm. uh, maybe I am wrong about that. I mean, um, okay. Well, let me ask. Do you think there's passive aggressive? Do you think there's a passive aggressive quality to the next scene, which is when they go back to their hotel room? And no, no, she sort of makes this offer. She's like, do you want to, you know, right. I, I do think, stuff to my body? I think we might just have different diagnoses of the problem, right? Okay. I, I, you and me might All have right. different My diagnosis is just like, this is a relationship that works intellectually for both of them, but mm -hmm. for which there is no real physical or romantic spark anymore. Um, I, I think that mm -hmm. is what we're what the show is trying to, to depict for us. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of these kinds of relationships exist and like, we don't see them very much on TV. Um, we see like loveless marriages that like mm -hmm. uh, are toxic and bad for both people. And we see like people really passionate about each other, but it's rare to see one that's like really in the gray area from my perspective. Um, and this is, that's That's kind of what my, my sense of it is. It's, it's not like, there's still like affection. There's still like um, caring and love, but that like physically the the attraction is not there anymore. Um, so, so that's my that's you, what I'm positing. Yeah. Do you not perceive any resentment from either side about that? Uh, I, I think there is a little bit resentment, but I don't think it's on screen yet uh, in a okay. in a significant way. So. Okay. Yeah, we're just going to completely agree to disagree on sure, that. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, but hey, you know, I haven't uh, seen the rest of the episodes yet, you know, so maybe sure. th th this uh, deep hidden resentments reveal themselves more explicitly, or maybe everyone listening to this podcast right now is screaming at their phone, uh, wondering <laughs> how I could be so off about this. 
Uh, I do not, think that your point about it being sort of like an intellectual, like intellectually that they still fit, they still align. Yeah. They still probably have shared perspectives about the world. I think that's totally fair. And I think we're sort of seeing that. I think the difference here is just how we're construing the sexual dynamic. Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, yes, as you indicate, there is this final scene where... Uh, she says, hey, I'm going to try to be more fun and, right. and kind of makes a half-hearted offer to have sex that uh, is not re- reciprocated, really. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a healthy relationship. I don't think it's, like, going great or anything like that. But um, but I don't sense it as, like, these people, you know, I'm, I, I don't see, like, oh, these people are just passively, aggressively sniping at each other. Um, no, and you know, I don't yeah. think that's constant. I just mm-hmm. think that we're beginning to see that more and more, right? I mean, we're seeing, uh, well, I don't know if I want to say right because we don't necessarily agree, but I think we're seeing it more often than what I think is being alluded to in the past. But I also think all of the relationships we're seeing on the show, at least the romantic relationships, are in various states of being unwell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Totally. Yeah, like Daphne and Cam aren't necessarily perfect either. Well, let's talk about that. So Daphne and Cam, we get some exposure to them this episode. Um, There's a scene early on that's very ominous where Cam yelling on the phone about his bag being lost, and he's like very angry. And Daphne remarks that sometimes, you know, he's cool as a cucumber, and sometimes he'll just lose it. And it's like, okay, that's um, scary. But don't you think she finds that funny? I mean, she says that it's kind of funny. I don't think she, she, it doesn't strike me as someone who's fearful of Cam, right? It struck me no. as like, she's just, hey, it's it's hilarious that sometimes he'll fly into a rage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, other than that, most of the scenes with, with Daphne and Cam are stuff we've already talked about. She, he kind of grabs her foot while they're swimming and is vague about needing them to like, you know, needing Ethan and Harper to like Daphne and Cam and... Um, there is a scene at dinner with, uh, where they talk about the birth and the C-section, but, but overall, other than their obliviousness to the world and kind of, um, boorishness, you know, to varying degrees, mm-hmm. uh, they seem like they're a, and, and Cam's fits of rage, they seem mm-hmm. like they're a loving couple that doesn't have that many issues, at least yeah, between I the mean- two of them. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'll say is they at least seem to have spent time together during the day. Mm-hmm. They go shopping, and yeah. Cam is trying on these ludicrously patterned Italian outfits. But it's at least a scene where we see them together, separate from Ethan and Harper, and we sort of get a sense of what that happy wife, happy life sort of dynamic looks like. Again, maybe it's facetious, right? Like maybe Harper is a hundred percent right that everything about this relationship is a performance. But they seem to genuinely enjoy each other's company in that scene in a way that we have not yet gotten for Harper and Ethan. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, she she also says, you know, they have a conversation towards the end where they talk about uh, Daphne says, like, I think some women cut off their husband's balls and then wonder why they're not attracted to them anymore. End quote. Yeah, it is this kind of. How do I put this? Very diplomatically. Like, I, I think that when I go online and I'm seeing what the quote-unquote discourse is like, um, mm-hmm. there are these kind of, there's a lot of tension and competing visions of what masculinity should be, right? Sure. 
And I think like if I'm to be very simplistic about or, you know, yeah, simplistic about it, it would be like there's a conflicting vision between like more traditional gender roles and um, and uh, like, let's say, more progressive vision of what a marriage or a relationship can be. Um, mm-hmm. And and the traditional gender roles is like, you know, the man should be a manly man and like go out and hunt for the food and, you know, um, right. and have large muscles and be able to be masculine and scream, you know, extremely loudly with his buddies who are also screaming loudly at the mountain or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the kind of vision of masculinity that I think a lot of like uh, often conservative people have. And, and it's c- kind of conflicts with um, a per- perhaps more gentle, more in touch with one's feelings version of masculinity. I'm being extremely like, Sort very of reduction is very simplistic sure. here. Like it's much more complicated than this, but I I do yeah. think this is kind of what these relationships are kind of nodding towards. It's like you know Cam and Daphne kind of believe in more traditional gender roles. Um, is my sense. Uh, what do you think of that, Roxana? Am I doing too reductionist here, or is this resonate with you? No, I don't necessarily think you're being too reductionist. I mean, I think that we're we're hmm. I don't want to say necessarily we're saying we're projecting but we do sort of know that Daphne is the stay-at-home mom we know she misses her kids in a way that Cam doesn't really I mean I think it was in the preceding episode where she asked if they could FaceTime again and Cam was like no it's too much I don't want to think about our children so I think yeah we are getting sort of that sense of she is stay-at-home I also think in this episode they talk about their spending habits and she says that she'll drunkenly just donate to a bunch of charities, you know, which also seems like sort of a maternal quality that we're assigning to her character that fits within those sort of stereotypical roles. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I just, again, don't know if we know enough about Ethan and Harper's home life to sort of understand that. Mm-hmm. As a contrast to Daphne, again, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Any other yeah. thoughts on the Ethan Harper Daphne Cam quadrangle? No, I mean, I think again that sort of the looming question of why does Cam need them both to like right. them? You know, I think like that's what's 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 going on here. Like, what is Cam is going to yeah. pitch? Like, is going to pitch something? At Ethan, presumably, like, what is going on here? Like, yeah. uh, we will probably find that out in a future episode, is my guess. Yeah. So, all right. Roxana, let's take a moment and thank our sponsor and talk about our sponsor. This episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. It's no surprise that here at the Decoding TV podcast, we absolutely love the idea of community. Over the course of the last decade, I personally have been really grateful to foster communities amongst uh, movie lovers with uh, my podcasts like uh, the Filmcast and also uh, TV lovers who enjoy each other's company and can bond over our shared excitement about the biggest shows in the zeitgeist. And that's why I'm really proud and excited for Decoding TV to partner with McDonald's uh, because they truly care about fostering a sense of community. And one of the biggest ways they foster their wonderful sense of community is through their incredible crew members who work hard to truly make you feel right at home when you stop at a McDonald's. Whenever I go to McDonald's, we have one literally a mile away from my house. 
I'm always impressed by how fast and friendly their crew members are. Uh, and the result is I get my food quickly. I get it with a smile. I get it with really a friendly tone. And uh, it's delicious. And it always provides me some comfort when I eat it. So it's been such a comfort to be able to have a local McDonald's over the past few years. Uh, whether you have that one crew member who always remembers that you like your Big Mac with an extra pickle or the one who always greets you in the drive through with a warm smile, thank you McDonald's crew members everywhere for making our McDonald's visits even more special. McDonald's. I'm loving it. All right. I love that. I'm sorry. Also, <laughs> yeah. can you get a Big Mac with an extra pickle? I think uh, if you probably, you can ask for one. You know, I think that's okay. uh, it's a possibility. So, I'm going to try that next uh, time. With the app now, they they like let you customize it in ways. That, I don't know if pickle is a specific thing, but like my wife wanted to order a, a McMuffin without, okay. the, without the muffin part. And that's, oh. that's possible to do now in the app. So okay. they really let you like customize these orders in a, in a really uh, cool way. Um, so okay. yeah, sh- I sh- might need sh- to explore. Shout out for the McDonald's app pickle. too. Yeah, the extra pickle is very appealing to mm. me. So nice. yeah, I need to poke around on the app, I guess. Yeah, yeah, or or just ask for it there. So anyway, yeah. Uh, thanks to McDonald's for sponsoring Decoding TV. Roxana, let's talk about the other storylines: Bert, Dominic, and Albie. Emerging as my favorite, I think. Really? Interesting. Tell yeah. me why. Why do you think it's your favorite? Because I think F. Murray Abraham is giving an amazing performance. I mean, I just think that he is nailing so much about this character. Mm-hmm. Both sort of the, again, if we're talking about gender roles, both the sense of like, well, why wouldn't your wife be here? <laughs> why are they so mad at you? Yeah. I think he's very incredulous in a way that is working for me. And I also think... But he's giving some very hilarious facial expressions. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll talk about this scene later on. But when he hears what's going on in Dom's room, he has this look that's just like, <laughs> what is he doing? <laughs> I told him to keep it together and he's not keeping it together. Mm. So I think he's doing a good sense of this generational, I don't want to say, I mean, again, we've said privilege a lot here, but this sort of generational privilege of I'm an older man and therefore, like, I think that men should just, like, do whatever. And it's fine as long as you keep it secret. <laughs> I guess I'm laughing at it because it is, like, sort of depressing. Uh, but he's just playing it in a way that is so pitch perfect. It's very, he's very matter of fact about it. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm liking this storyline because basically we get to see kind of the the generational damage that philandering can do throughout uh, like and its impact on three separate individuals basically right and and how normalizing of it really not just the philandering but like the of course i would do this why wouldn't i do this mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how how it kind of plays out for three different individuals and and it obviously resonates with them in different ways you know um yeah there, there was no, you know, my parents are extremely conservative Christian, but like, so there's no philandering. But um, right. I, I did, you know, I had a talk with my brother recently where like um, we love our parents, but, you know, our parents can do things that uh, give us complexes about certain things. And, and I was talking with my brother yesterday about how like, uh, the, you know, some of the ways that our parents raised us like affected me in a way that differently than it affected him. And it's just like, of course. you get to kind of yeah. see how it like resonates over the years. And th- this is this is the storyline that kind of gives us a closest sense of that. Oh, you, you see how Dominic could have come from um, Bert and then you yeah. see how Albie 
given that he's probably Gen Z, maybe mm-hmm. Gen Z millennial border, probably Gen Z. Um, I think Gen Z. Yeah, Gen Z. Gen but you, you like how him in a Gen Z environment is like much more uh, reasonable and treats women with much more respect. And, you know, like so far, Does so far. He? So far. Does he? I mean, we'll talk about Certainly that. Certainly the least objectionable. <laughs> hmm. um, okay. You, hmm. you, you, you disagree, but I don't think we have any reason to see him. Um, I mean, he's not like the most suave guy, but I think he's uh, more least disrespectful, I guess is kind of what I would say. So I think someone who tells you that they're a nice guy. Mm. And who tells you that they're being victimized for being a nice guy? Yeah, I that's, think that's that's sort of automatically, I think, a little bit of a warning for us about where this character could go. Mm-hmm. But something that I really liked about season one was the difference between Olivia and her younger brother. And I thought that that storyline, the Olivia and Quinn, right? Quinn was her younger brother's name. Yeah. I think that storyline was really well done to your point of how do people grow up in the same house and just become completely different people? Yeah. What is the nature nurture line? Uh, and we're really getting that with the three of them. So this starts, this storyline starts with what? Dom wakes up in bed with Lucia's underwear. Right. And I'll just say, yeah. hey, before we move on, I'll just say, hey, yeah, it could, Albie could turn out to be like massive incel, uh, you know. Sure. Uh, and I agree, that's like very incel type language of like being a nice, which he does use in the episode. But yeah. so, so far, he's, again, I'm the least concerned about him. But we'll see. I'm, I'm, I have an open mind about all these characters. So, yeah. Anyway. I just think the way that Mike White writes, like every line matters, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that whole, you know. When he's at dinner with Porsche is what you're talking about, right? Yeah, his yeah. conversation with Portia, I think, is important. But we'll get there. Yeah, yep. I mean, that's toward the end of the episode. Let's, like, back it up. Yeah, so there is a scene where uh, Dom wakes up, finds underwear in his bed, and then they all have breakfast, and Portia's there. Now, Portia protests in this episode, Roxana. She Initially. Says, she says, "What? well, well I was going to say, later on, she's like, she, she catches Jennifer Coolidge's eye a bunch of times, and Jennifer, and actually, she I think she catches, uh, what, Greg, right? Is that his name? I think so. Um, yeah, yeah Greg, Greg like Greg sees her. her there. Like she definitely yeah. sees her. And yeah. uh and she's like, "Well, what does she expect me to do? Like I have to eat." And here here's the thing, Roxana. Look. I I agree that being a personal assistant is a very dehumanizing job and Sure. Uh and I agree it's not reasonable to expect them to stay in the room all the time, but uh five-star hotels have room service, you know? You yeah. could technically I'm not saying Tanya's reasonable. I'm just saying that it is possible for someone to physically survive staying in a room all week. Um, so if I wanted to be very uncharitable, <laughs> I would say that, you know, Portia sees Albie as an opportunity, right? Mm. I mean, I think that he is sort of non-threatening to her yeah. because he's there with his father and his grandfather. And I think when they invite her to go, it's like, oh, of course I'll go, right? I mean, I think Portia is taking the advice of, I think it was her sister in episode one, who was like, have a good time. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I don't want to say that's nefarious, but I agree with you. Like, it's not like the resort is bad. She could just hang (laughs) out. She could just hang. Yeah, she could hang. She probably has a balcony in her room. Right, exactly. It's, it's, anyway, I'm not, again, I'm not saying Tanya's reasonable. She's clearly, like, not reasonable. I'm just saying that, like, um, you know, uh, I, I think I've said I said what I had to say, so I'm not I'm not gonna yeah. let's move on. Um, yeah. uh, so anyway, they meet at breakfast, right? Bert, Dominic, and Albie meet at breakfast, and 
it's not, it's nice when you like make a cool connection with someone like while you're on vacation. You know, you'd never meet this person, but like, and so they invite her to go along because um, they're going on this pilgrimage and. Uh, Bert is very bothered that Dominic's wife and daughter are not there, and he mm. asks a lot of uncomfortable questions about it. Um, but yeah, uh, then there's a scene with Dominic and these locals. But before we get to that, any other thoughts on like the breakfast stuff and going on the trip? No, I mean I think that's all fine. I will just say that uh, is the hike scene after after the locals. It's like right. It's like right. Afterwards, yeah, because okay, they're about okay. to go off, and then Dominic's like, "Hey, I got to make a call real quick," and then mm-hmm. he introduces the locals to the hotel manager, Valentina. Uh, I love that scene. It's a great scene because it's great because first of all, you can tell Valentina's just trying to like put a stop to this, however she can. She's yeah. throwing up barriers left and right to like make this work or yeah. to make this not work. But I also like that the the show acknowledges that like. A lot of the hospitality business and the sex worker business are like inter like they both have a symbiotic relationship. I think mm-hmm. you know, like they both benefit from the other party, mm-hmm. um, and that's what uh, uh, Lucia and Mia, uh, Lucia mostly like acknowledges. Like, hey, like you're you're making money off of this too. Like, I'm making money off of it. Can't we both just be? business people and like accept right. each other's presence. Um, right. But uh, I don't think Valentina is quite as easily swayed. So no. Yeah. Lucia goes with like a, the customer is always right for both of our respective industries yeah. sort of line of questioning. But yeah, that's a great scene. I mean, we haven't gotten again. Valentina is not to the level of Armand, I think narratively, but this scene felt very of like a season one rhythm of, the resort staff is doing everything they can to sort of maintain this level yeah. of hoity-toitiness. And uh, the actresses who play Lucia and Mia are great because they are really gleeful in that scene, like barely containing how happy they are to gain access. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's a good, it's a good tone, I think. Yeah. And we do see Valentina being pretty rude to all of her employees. Like, yeah, we do see she's very uh, brusque brusque and also you know charitable way of looking at it is that she has like high standards uncharitable way is she's kind of a jerk you know um also sure yeah so uh but yeah i thought that was a great scene and then of course lucia and mia go off and well we'll talk about them a little little bit later let's finish up with the uh bert dominic and albie stuff so they go Mm -hmm. uh they go to is it like the coliseum or something like that i don't something like a theater i don't know if it was the coliseum or Whatever it was, is beautiful, you know? And, yeah. uh, I mean, the whole show is incredibly beautiful this season. Amazing cinematography and, and vistas and views. Um, and, yeah, uh, they have more dialogue about whether Dom should try to get back with his ex-wife and Bert's insistent that he should and, you, you know, did you really do anything that badly and so on and so forth. Um, there is a story about Hades and Persephone. Yeah. Uh, what did you make of that? Hades raped Persephone in Sicily. Uh, really, this guy Bert, he really knows how to how to charm uh, charm the uh, the guests with his uh, fun stories, huh? Bert is digging up the classics. Mm-hmm. Bert just mm-hmm. wants to <laughs> wants to give a history lesson. I thought this was great. I mean, again, if we're talking about uh, dialogue that is clearly purposeful, I think 
whatever you've done can't be as bad as Hades and the raping. I think mm-hmm. we're supposed to file away yeah. as something potentially with Dom. And I mean, you raised a possibility for Dom after season one, which is, are we seeing a Me Too storyline? And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if the I don't know if the show would get that explicit, but I think we are sort of maybe getting another subtle examination of a powerful position and what that affords you. Mm-hmm. And I, I with the Hades that, with the Hades mention is that what you're saying? Yeah, yes. and and I think that Dom's sort of song and dance with Valentina about Lucia and Mia almost felt not rehearsed, but maybe familiar. So maybe there is something else that we're supposed to be intuiting about, like, who Dom is and potentially what his addictions and compulsions have done. Mm-hmm. It feels like a lot of talking around stuff is happening. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the Hades and Persephone scene. I did gasp when Bert said that. And again, to your point, F. Murray Abraham is just so matter of fact about it. Yeah. That it's this great sort of contradictory effect of this shocking story that he's just recounting very casually. Indeed. Uh, they have dinner later on. Dominic and Bert have dinner themselves. Albie and mm-hmm. Portia go off on their own and have dinner separately. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dom uh, is basically given a hard time because he wasn't careful enough. You know, yeah. like you should he's have been sloppy. more careful. And then Dominic's like, well, you weren't exactly super careful either. So like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? And, yeah. and you get a sense that these guys are just kind of like, Kind of not great guys, you know, <laughs> if I may use an understatement. Um, maybe not the best guys. Maybe not the best role models for Albie. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. Right? yeah. So Al- and Albie and Portia have dinner together and you, I guess, sense some sinister undertones from this conversation. Well, no, I don't think it's sinister in the way that I don't think Albie is like going to attack her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think... Albie, uh, I think, is so intent on not being like his father and his grandfather. Mm-hmm. But I don't hmm, how to phrase this. Okay. I think in episode one, we talked about how it seemed like Harper is defining herself based on what she's not, right? Like she's not like Daphne and Cam. So therefore, she must be not materialistic. She must be morally good. All of that stuff, I think. And and so in that way, I think she sort of lacks a defining personality of her own because she is just considering herself in terms of what she doesn't want to be. I think Albie is the same way. He so doesn't want to be like his father and his grandfather that I think what's actually there is this sort of like presumptive nice guy quality. And he seems very nice. I don't want to say that he seems... You know, like, again, like, it's facetious. But at the end, when he's like, you know, girls say they want a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, he says, girls, you, you wrote the quote in the in the notes, girls always complain that guys aren't nice. But then if they find a nice guy, they aren't always interested. I just don't right. want to be my, like, I just don't want to be like my dad. I refuse to have a bad relationship with women, end quote, right? That's kind of what yeah. he says. So. But you need to be something more than nice, right? Like, you need mm-hmm. to have some other personality trait. And sometimes people just aren't attracted to you, even if you are nice. Niceness is not, mm-hmm. you know, the end all be all. So, yeah, so they have this, they have a dinner together. And I think through that dinner, you get some more uh, explanation about how Albie views himself. He sees himself as the peacemaker between his parents. 
And then we also get some stuff that Portia says about Tanya, right? Like, because they see Tanya and Greg, I think Portia also drops some Tanya knowledge on us that we yeah. did not know before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, information about the fact that, like, wh- why Tanya is, like, might be troubled, basically, in, in, yeah. in certain ways, right? So, um, And that she had to sign an NDA. Yeah. 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 So... They uh, stop hanging out. He he walks her to her door, asks if he can kiss her. She says yes. Um, it's awkward, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not like the super most loving thing, but he's up for like hanging out again, and uh, right. we'll see if that happens. Um, I mean, I think her response will. is sure. Her yeah. response is not like yeah, I'm super excited. Her response is like a shrugging. Okay, I don't have any other options. I chalked it up to awkwardness, Roxana. I but you know that's fair. It's fair. I didn't chalk it up like, you know, I didn't chalk it. The way you're describing it almost sounds like resignation, but that's not the sense I got from Oh, I 100% read it as resignation. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we have uh, different perspectives on this. Anyway, the other thing we should mention about Dominic and and Bert is that uh, later Dominic has a conversation with Lucia. Lucia shows up as, as was planned. She's already spent quite a bit of money. Like, uh, he, Dom had said to her, Hey, Please don't go wild. Like, have some drinks, have some food, but don't go wild. She's, like, bought dresses and got drinks, and I think she probably spent a little bit more. It didn't seem, like, wildly unreasonable, but it was definitely probably more than Dom thought. Anyway, he says, hey, I don't want to do this tonight because I am struggling with sex addiction, and Mm -hmm. uh, let's not, you know, I don't want to have this temptation. And Lucia and Mia are able to overcome his reservations. Yeah. Uh, and they kind of yeah. have a wild night that Bert hears through the wall a little bit, right? And that's kind mm-hmm. of where that plot line ends. So mm-hmm. are are the white light are the white lotus walls really so thin? I will say that I, I have on occasion stayed in a luxury hotel and very mm-hmm. often, very often, um, you can hear what people are doing through the walls. You know, oh, it's wow. not, it's not, uh, quite as bad as what you'd hear, like what you see in the show. But like, sure. I, I basically what I'm trying to say is I don't trust a hotel wall. Okay. That's kind of <laughs> what I'm trying to say. I don't trust a hotel wall, uh, yeah. like basically ever. And that's another thing that really bothered me too, is Ethan and Harper, like talking openly about, Cam and Daphne, like, while they're in the next room. My wife would be so upset if I was talking about, like, our sweet mates or whatever. Because, I, you know, largely because my voice is very loud and it carries Roxana, and so she'd be mortified Mm -hmm. that, like, the possibility. But uh, anyway, I'm just saying, wow, talking in full voice about the people you're hanging out with, um, not a good idea. Don't. Again, go into the bathroom. The bathroom (laughs) seems really nice. Why is no one using the bathroom? If yes, I, I think I think that's basically the takeaway of this episode is if it, that going into the bathroom would have solved a lot of problems, you know, yeah. or potential problems. Um, any um, thoughts on the the Dominic like hanging out with these women? Like it was such a weird vibe. I thought was it we? I mean, <laughs> I think it's sort of. I don't know if it's weird. I mean, I think we're sort of getting the sense that Dom. Doesn't actually want to change, right? I mean, it was very easy mm-hmm. for the two of them to offer him a threesome and talk their way into his room. Yeah, Lucia is very confident about being his girlfriend for the week. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're really seeing Dom put up a lot of resistance or actively attempt to change. So yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I say weird, I think it was just, it felt like it was like drug fueled almost, like the way it was shot. Oh, um, basically. Okay. Um, Did it feel the same way to you as the sex scene at the end of the first episode? No, no. It, it, felt, it felt more like frenetic and like, because mm-hmm. just the combination of edits and camera angle, like the camera angle is like mm-hmm. weird, like tilting and. Because we're in the water too. Yeah, we're in the water. I can tell if that was like a bath, a big bathtub, or like a mini pool in the suite or whatever. Yeah. So, but yeah, that felt very. It's different from she's joining him on a chair. Right. It's now you're adding a third party and you're adding a third party and putting water in the mix. You know, who knows what could happen? Wild. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, So yeah, I I think you you make a great observation. Dom is losing it. He's Mm -hmm. out of control. So not keeping it tight. Indeed. Okay. Uh, we've are basically already talked about Portia, right? I, I don't know if there's anything else you want to mention about Portia and Lucia and Mia before we get to Tanya and Greg. I think that Mia performing is a big deal. I mean, Mia has, from the first episode, talked about wanting to be a singer. And I think there is this, uh, I think she was very offended by what Giuseppe did in episode one and, you know, throwing her drink in his face and everything when he assumed that she was a prostitute. So I think in this episode, we're getting a greater sense of who she wants to be. She wants to be a singer. She's not bad. She has a good voice. And I think she sort of shocks Giuseppe by being good. So I I think that's something to watch. Like Lucia is clearly banking on Dom for this week. But I think Mia has her eye on Giuseppe in sort of a different way, like a, I'll show you what I'm made of kind yeah. of way. And I think she's like, you know, as you said, I think she's legitimately good yeah. uh, at singing. And it was cool yeah. to hear. Cool to hear. Yeah. So, all right. Tanya and Greg. Yeah. Oh, God, Tanya and Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tanya wants the perfect day, right? And she lays oh, out Tanya. all the things that she wants and... She wants to ride in a Vespa and go to this place and take pictures and dress up in a certain way. And Jennifer Coolidge is just a delightful actor. Uh, the the part about posing for the photos is great. Um, when she's on the Vespa with Greg, she's like choking him uh, by mm-hmm. accident. But then like bugs are flying in her and it's oh like God. in her mouth. And it's like some really amazing physical acting that I think Jennifer yeah. Coolidge is doing where she's like, she's like coughing so intensely on the bike. It's... It's really, really funny. I think she's she remains a delight in the show. Um, and even yeah. before they really get going on the Vespa, the sort of rhythm of uh, Greg failing to drive it at first. Yeah. You know, that I think that sort of failed attempt was very funny as well. We also get Valentina's very cruel description of Tanya as Peppa Pig. Yeah, she's like, who am I dressing up as? You know, and <laughs> Valentina says Peppa Pig? Which is yeah. just like, I mean, that is almost like, I don't even believe that anymore. Like, like no. what I mean by that is that, like, that's like so, even if you weren't the manager of a, you know, top tier resort, like that would be, un, un, I have to imagine across cultures, it is not acceptable to compare someone to a pig, you know? Right. Um, I'll I, be I, honest. Yeah. I would have bought it if it was Miss Piggy. Yeah, yeah. If she yeah. said Miss Piggy, I could see that because Miss Piggy as a she's like a glamorous, you know, glamorous. Yeah, 
yeah. glamorous. But Peppa Pig, I was like, isn't Peppa Pig a children's character? I was mm-hmm. like, why would Valentina make yeah. that reference? So yeah, that was a moment where I was like, mm, I don't know. You're you're really hitting this point that Valentina is not is really awkward, like a little too hard. I think show. Yeah, you know, yeah, and mean, like yeah. just sort of mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Not quite. Not quite a well-balanced Valentina depiction yet, I think. So, no, yeah. not really. No. Anyway. Yeah, we get these, again, to your point about the beautiful cinematography, as Greg and Tanya are, like, winding around, like, the mountain roads, looking out over how beautiful this landscape is. I mean, all of that is done so well. And again, a sort of an homage to the Italian cinema that Tanya wants to emulate yes. during this perfect day. Yes. Um, well said, well said. So, anyway... Uh, later on, they have dinner, and then Greg reveals that he actually needs to end the vacation early. You know, he Which, a vacation that he said was romantic, and he was so angry that Portia was there, and yeah. right. And Jennifer Coolidge is like, "Thank God I kept my personal assistant around." And so that made that gave me a little bit of um, uh, heart palpitations because I'm like, "Oh, she's going to bring Portia yeah. back into the mix somehow," and like that's not going to be good. I think. Um, but yeah, Greg is like, I wanted to give you a perfect day because I got to cut the vacation off early. And then comments that it's because uh, she made him sign a prenup. And and right. really, like a lot of the tensions spill out where he's like, you discard people left and right. You're capricious. You're fickle. Like, I can't predict what you're going to do. So I need to keep my job. And honestly, I'm very sympathetic with Greg in that moment, you know? In that moment, yes. Yeah. I mean, again, it's one of those things where it's like, I think you could have said this differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could have been kinder. But Tanya, I mean, putting aside all the, like, the macaron fight and the panna cotta dig, yeah. she she is indecisive and fickle and all of those things. I don't think he's wrong. Yeah. I just think there's a cruelty to what he says. And then when we find out by the end of this storyline, well, what else is happening with Greg? It felt to me like, hey, this is kind of what... Um, you know, obviously the show has to do with rich people all the time, um, but it, it's uh, basically like Rachel, and, Rachel and Shane from last season. Like fast for fast forward them to the end and mix up the dynamics a little bit, you know. And this is kind of like what it might be like, where one person feels like, oh, I need to keep doing my own thing so that if this right. relationship fails, um, I have something to hang on. So I'm not like literally out on the street, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very, th- this is not just a dynamic between Tanya and Greg. This is something that happens like very often where there's like a wealth imbalance in a relationship like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you really- did you say this yep. last episode where you brought up contempt? Yes, that was right? me. You talked about this. There's yeah. so much contempt yeah. in this conversation Yeah, from Greg to Tanya. That it's just, it's very uncomfortable to watch. I mean, the Hades and Persephone stuff with Bert sort of made me laugh because it was so unexpected. But this whole scene was just very cringy. And as much as Tanya is sort of awful, I don't know if anybody necessarily needs to be talked to by someone like that. I agree. Like, you shouldn't shouldn't be contemptful to your partner. But I... In again, in this scene, I was very sympathetic to Greg because it, it, it's yeah. like you know, yeah, he he probably feels trapped. Like her quirks, which were originally like super fun and interesting, probably have worn thin over time, and now like yeah. now you got to deal with the reality of actually living with this person. But then mm-hmm. the final scene turned it all around for me because he's cutting off the vacation, 
not for work, but to go to somebody that he's having an affair with, or so we are led to believe in this episode. Yes, you're right. We are led to believe that. I mean, yeah. he calls Tanya. So basically, so what happens here, right, is that uh, Tanya wakes up in bed alone. Yeah. She like walks through the suite trying to find Greg. She sees she, ha- she has a vision of the volcano going off near them, by the way. Yes. Which is also right. something that's seen in the opening credits, FYI. Right. Like the painting is alive with the volcano. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So exactly. yeah, anyway, anyway, go ahead. You're saying Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so she uh wakes up from this or whatever, or it's just I don't know. It's interesting that both the Moore's heads and the volcano are related to Tanya. But moving on past from that. She walks out. She sees him on the balcony. Now, I don't think that she hears the conversation. I don't think we're led to believe that that happens. But then we go out onto the balcony and we hear Greg's side of the conversation with whomever. I, I thought um, the implication was that we heard that she heard it, by the way. But uh, Really? But, yeah. Oh, I didn't think okay. that at all. All right. All right. Well, anyway, go, but go ahead. Finish yeah. what you're saying. I didn't yeah. think that. But yeah. yeah, so he calls Tanya clueless and he says to the person he's speaking with, I love you too. I look forward to it. So yeah, I thought a fair. Yeah, or it's like I, it's like I'll see you tomorrow, which is like when he's leaving, right? So it's like oh, yes. he's leaving to go see this person, and he says I love you. Now, you know, maybe it's lying a whole about big work. Well, yeah, he's lying about work for, certainly. Yeah, but maybe it's a big misunderstanding, Roxana. You know, maybe um, maybe Greg he's is going he to loves Bob, his he, boss. He, he... <laughs> Loves Bob. I'll see you tomorrow, man. Bye. You know, you just maybe. Made me, you made me choke just now. That was very funny. Um, yeah. yeah, or maybe it's like his mom or something like that. Yeah. Um, and if he loves Bob, good for him. Like, that's fine. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, I, the yeah. only reason I thought that we didn't hear that is I think at the end we cut back to Tanya. Yes. And isn't it quiet? Well, he had already wrapped up his conversation by that point, or he was—he had like walked somewhere else. So, okay, I think it's. But I agree. I, I would say that it was ambiguous. Um, yeah. But that my, you know, interpretation of the ambiguous situation was that she heard it. So, do you we, think Tanya would not react if she had heard it? Well, I think that the in general she would react, but we did have that earlier conversation where they already clearly had like a pretty big falling out at dinner. So, like maybe she's yeah. like processing, you know. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? We'll find out next episode. So we will. Yeah. Until then, uh, I think I think that's it for this episode. Any other random associated thoughts of this episode, or shall we wrap it up there, Roxana? I think that sounds good. Yeah, I can't think of anything else. I'm glad you brought up the volcano. Yeah. Because I do think like the first season of the White Lotus so often used the waves as this yeah. sort of ominous, foreboding element, and we're getting that as well. Um, but I like the volcano. I like the Moore's head. I think we're adding some atmospheric touches that I am interested in continuing to track. Um, the only other thing I want to mention is I think the show continues to be really funny with the hints of who is dead. First of all, like oh. no, no cutting to the future storyline again this episode. I, I like that they're kind of, it's probably going to be a reveal like last, last season where we find out in the last like 15 minutes. Yeah. Of the final episode, who's dead? But there's like a few. There's a handful of like very funny lines along those lines. Like, um, I think um, uh, Cameron. Like they're talking about Cameron losing his temper earlier, and and Daphne's like, "Oh yeah, all of a sudden he'll just lose it." And then and then Cameron says, "Incompetence. Like these people are so incompetent. Makes me homicidal." Yes. And it's like, yes, really, Cam? Yes. Are you? Are, but are you actually homicidal? You know, right. that's that's the question. Are you going to get right. homicidal? 
Um, let's see. Uh, that is basically it. Um, I am curious. The only other thing I would say is I'm curious, like, uh, what perspective the show is going to take on the concept of sexual addiction, which is what Dom says he's suffering from. Like, is, is sexual addiction even a legitimate thing to suffer from, you know, like, or is it just like mm-hmm. this guy is extremely horny and he has resources, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm or curious. Is it that sexual addiction is a real thing, but it's not Dom's scenario. And yeah. Just yeah. A narcissist. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, like where the whole sex worker sex addiction storyline is going. Still don't think we have enough information on that. Mm-hmm. But those are some of my thoughts. Uh, and I got to the rest of them during, during the rest of our recap. So I think we can probably wrap it up there. I think so. Roxana Haddadi, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Vulture and you can find me on Twitter. And we'll leave a link to Roxana's work in the show notes. Find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of our interpretations of this episode. And find us on TikTok, YouTube, and Twitter at Decoding TV. She is Roxana Haddadi. I am David Chen. You're listening to Decoding TV. We'll be back next week with our recap and review of Season 2, Episode 3 of The White Lotus. Goodbye. Bye, guys.